Very well done. Thank you, Krista. Well, what on earth is going on in a passage like this? If you start reading the Bible at the cover, at the very beginning, you get 38 chapters in. Well, you get less than that, actually. But you certainly get 38 chapters in and you get a passage like this. And if you've read the Bible from cover to cover, you might stop at this point and say, I'm not reading anymore. Even in hyper-sexualized 2023, this is a passage that many people feel should be cancelled from the Bible entirely. How could it possibly be in God's holy word? Now, I feel like that's not the first time I've ever said uh, this in this church. We've come across passages like this over and over and over again. And many people, as I've discussed this passage with them this week and what they've thought of it in advance of the sermon, have said the same thing. We very rarely have ever heard in our whole Christian life sermons on passages like this. Which makes me think just for a minute, what's a sermon for? I mean, what are we doing when we, when we gather together as a church family? Well, you see, on the one hand, it might be easy. If, if a sermon is about finding moral lessons then you find the good guys and the bad guys and you give the good guys a tick and the bad guys a cross and, and that's not what a sermon's for. Or if a sermon is for giving us life tips, like a self-help book, then we find the things that we should do, the wise things that we should do and the foolish things that we shouldn't do and we work out which ones are which. But that's not necessarily what a sermon's for either. If a sermon is to up, uplift us because, frankly, life in the real world is hard and what I need is just a bit of encouragement to get me up and going out in the world because life's hard, then we find that in the passage where we can and we'd never go to a passage like this if that's the point of a sermon. And in some ways, you want there to be some lessons for our morality. You want there to be some tips for life. You want there to be some uplifting message. But what we want to do when we hear from the Bible in a sermon is we want to hear from God. We want to listen to God. And God in his word has put this chapter in the Bible. And more than that, I want for us as we gather together week by week to hear a message from the front that you can model in your own life. What do I mean by that? Well, one of my goals as I preach a sermon week by week from the scriptures to you is to model how to read the Bible for yourself. See, if all it is is moral lessons and life tips, only the experts can do that. Only the experts can pass on that information to those who need it. But I want to say we're on this journey together. We listen to God together and I hope that I can model to you how to read the Bible for yourself so that when you read from the beginning of the Bible all the way through to the end, you come across a chapter like this and you don't simply cancel it, but read it for all it's worth because all Scripture is God-breathed, isn't it? Even Genesis chapter 38. This passage is God-breathed. It has been written by God for our benefit and so that we might know more about him. This morning, I want us to dive into this passage and to look at it in all of its disgrace because what we'll find is God's grace in the face of human disgrace. You might like to ask a question. We've got a question time every, every week after our sermons here. And so uh, slido.com on your device is the place to find it 
And to ask a question, use the hashtag HB for Helensburg and SP for Stanwell Park, HBSP. I'm going to pray. We need God's help, don't we? Let's dive into God's word together. Heavenly Father, please be with us as we come to a challenging passage of scripture that challenges our sensibilities. Please help us as we have a look together at what your word says. Teach us and train us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're part of a series that's gone all the way back to Genesis chapter 25, and we'll go all the way back, all the way through to chapter 50. And last week we picked up the story in chapter 37 with the person of Joseph. Joseph, the man of the coat of many colours, as many would know, was at the end of last week sold to be taken to Egypt. Chapter 37, verse 36 says this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And if you come over to chapter 39, verse 1, you'll see this. Now Joseph, who had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian who had brought him down from the Israelites, uh, who had brought him down there, the Lord was with Joseph, and so it goes on. You could read from the end of chapter 37 and to the start of chapter 39 and leave chapter 38 out altogether and nothing would be missed. Sounds good. Which leaves us with that other question. Why is it here? Well, we're going to look at the story. We're going to look at the story under four headings. Judah's sin, Tamar's deception, Judah's repentance and God's grace. Let's dive in. Judah's sin. Chapter 38 is all about this man, Judah. He's the fourth son of 12 sons of Jacob. There's lots of J's around, Jacob and Joseph and Judah. Don't get confused with all of this. But it was Judah who led the way in chapter 37 in selling his brother. Imagine doing that, selling his brother into the hands of the Egyptians. And now, having sold his brother, he himself leaves the family. Verse 1 tells us that he goes down to Hira's place, the Adullamite. And when he's there, he marries a Canaanite woman. We're not told her name. We're only told the name of her father, Shua. And why aren't we told her name? Surely she's deserving of having her name be uh, spoken here in the Bible. Well, the fact that her name is not here is, is not because she is of no value, but because she's sort of like what we might say in our day and age, she who shall not be named. You know, when you have that conversation around your dinner table and you speak of the person who should not be named, whoever that might be in your household, and this lady should not be named. Why? Because Judah marries the wrong person. Judah marries a Canaanite. And that's a problem in the Bible. That God's people would intermarry with the Canaanites is a problem. You see, the Bible is against intermarriage. Now, we've got to be careful here, don't we? For many years, for many years, people have taught, and sometimes even in churches, that racial intermarriage is wrong, that it's frowned upon. Of course, that would be straight up racist to say something like that. So why is the Bible against intermarriage? Well, it's never necessarily against the intermarriage of nationalities so much as it is against the intermarriage of religion. This is the case right through the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. To take on a husband or a wife who does not belong to the same faith 
as you is wrong. And the Canaanites most certainly did not follow the one true God. And so Judah, he goes down to the Adullamite, uh, the Adullamite Hira's house and he marries this Canaanite woman, she who shall not be named. Now it's important for us to remember that this is the same way that God operates in relationships today. The most important relationship a human being can have is with the God who made them. This is the most important relationship. And the Apostle Paul even goes so far as to say, if you can't find someone that matches your faith, you're better off being single. It's almost a swear word in our, common, in our world today, isn't it? But we must understand for all of us that our number one relationship is our relationship with God and then our relationship with our spouse. And so by marrying outside the faith, it is by definition an admission that God is not number one in your life. And this should not be done. Here's the first mistake that Judah makes. He marries outside of the faith. But as he marries this Canaanite woman, he has three boys to her. Now, this gets a little bit confusing, so I've got a bit of a family tree on the screen for you. Judah gets married to the Canaanite woman, and he has three boys. The first boy, creatively, was described, was called Ur. I don't know how that happened. What do you want to call your son? Uh, right, that'll do. Um, that's how it works. Uh, the second son is called Onan, and the third one, he wanted to be Australian, is called Sheila, just because that's what you should do. Here are the three boys of Judah and this Canaanite woman. Now, in time, as was the uh, way in those days, Judah organised a wife for his eldest child, Ur. And this uh, woman was called Tamar. And so here, the, here is the family tree as we have it. Judah and the Canaanite woman, three boys, Ur, Onan and Shelah. And Tamar comes along to marry Ur. But we're told in verse 7... That Ur is for some reason so wicked that the Lord puts him to death. Now Tamar is in a very vulnerable situation. In the ancient world, this is a very tough situation to be in. The wife would have had no income. She had no heir to her, uh, her family that could have taken things forward. She was in an incredibly vulnerable situation. And so there was a law in God's ancient world that the next brother up in the list should take on uh, this woman as his wife. And so this is what happens. Onan ends up marrying Tamar. But here's the problem. Uh, the children that were the child, the first child that would be uh, had between Onan and Tamar would legally belong to the dead father that came before. So it would be Ur's child. He would be the heir over all of the family. And so Onan, he takes her on as a wife. But we're told in these verses that he himself is wicked. Verse 9, when Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. He embarks in the ancient birth control method of coitus interruptus and he stops the babies being born. And we're told this is wicked and he himself is put to death 
as well. Now, we just need to stop here for a minute. We need to stop here for a minute because Onan has become famous throughout history for his act. For many years, you might know uh, that Onanism is another word for a word you'll never hear in church, but you will now, masturbation. Onanism and masturbation are the same thing. And actually, we need to talk about this. Because for many years, this idea of Onanism, especially uh, through the, the, the Roman Catholic Church over years has deeply affected the way in which people see masturbation and even birth control. Not only that, it's led to many seeing the sexual act between a man and a woman in marriage as being in some way dirty or in some way wrong. But I want you to see here in these verses what is going on for the man named Onan. Look again at verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So, that was the issue. That was the wickedness. The wickedness was not that he wasted his semen on the ground. The wickedness was that he knew his off- the offspring would not be his. He knew that now, as the heir to the family line through Judah, if he had a child that would become Ur's child, he would lose all his privileges. That is his wickedness. The issue is not where the semen goes, but the heart and mind of Onan. Now, all of this is pretty weird to us, isn't it? The very idea that a brother would have a wife and the wife die and then we marry the brother. I mean, that's all just so weird to us in our day and age. But not for him. What he did was selfish and dishonourable. He knew that there would be some young kid above him in the pecking order and so he decides, no, I will not do my duty here for Tamar. And so he spills his semen on the ground. But for many over the years, they have seen this, the semen spilling on the ground being the issue which which is the sin itself. And the problem is that this has got, over the years, those with tender consciences in couples and even singles into all sorts of trouble with their conscience. It has caused couples to think sexual activity is somehow dirty or to be compromised when it comes to thinking of questions of birth control and contraception or with singles when even as a young person someone may have a wet dream, a nocturnal omission, and think that they have committed a sin against God. And so we must just quickly say this, sex is a good gift from God. And it is to be used exclusively in the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And it is to be used, according to the scriptures, for procreation, yes, but also for enjoyment, for connectivity. And we need to say that it is not dirty, the biology of sex, whatever that includes between a man and a woman in their marriage together. They're encouraged to enjoy one another and to serve one another and to see what they do, not as as dirty, but as an an opportunity to connect together. And then we come to the issue of of onanism. What can we say of of masturbation or a wet dream or whatever the case may be? I know this is making it awkward, but it's important for us to know. 
This has led to so much false theology through the years. It's important for us to know that in theory, at least, these things are not wrong. But like Onan, it's a question of what's in the heart and the mind. For Onan, the problem was not the biological act of the semen on the ground, but the heart that said, I will not allow this offspring to be born. The problem is the same today. Physically, the act of masturbation or a wet dream is not in itself wrong, but if the heart is full of fantasies, if the mind is full of lust, if the memory is full of pornography, then it's wrong. Now, of course, that is so common in our current day and age, isn't it? Pornography is all over the place. We're encouraged to face and, and uh, chase after our fantasies and our lusts. But the Bible is clear. Cut those things out. Run away from them. Flee from them. The biological act in itself is not wrong. But the mind is where the problem lies. So back to Tamar. Imagine her situation. Two husbands now dead. This is a bad news situation. And Judah, rather than giving his third son, Shelah, to, uh, to Tamar, he protects himself and he's, well, he embarrasses this young woman as well. He says, you've got to go back to your father's house without hope and abandoned. And this is where she takes matters into her own hands, Tamar's deception. After a while, we're told in this passage, verse 12, Judah's wife, the Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shuah, she herself dies. And after a time of mourning is over, Tamar realises that Shelah is old enough, she's not going to get married again. She's been left out in the cold. And so she hears Judah has come to town and disguises herself as a prostitute in order to get herself pregnant by Judah. This is seriously messed up, isn't it? To get pregnant to your father-in-law seems a ridiculous thing to do. Now, it's not good what she does here. But as the saying goes, desperate people do desperate things. And she was desperate. Not to mention, she must have known enough about Judah to know that if she dressed up as a prostitute, he would, in the first place, be looking for something. What a terrible man. Well, he doesn't pick her disguise. He goes and has sex with her and she becomes pregnant. But what about the payment? Well, look at your Bibles again, verse 16, the second half of verse 16. Well, we'll read all of verse 16. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that, uh, that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me? What's the payment that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. I don't have any money right now. I've got a goat at home. I'll, I'll get one for you later. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, what are you going to leave as a down payment? What does he say? Verse 18. What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So she, he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. A lot of these things don't make a lot of sense to us, but just imagine that what he left is all of the, uh, the things basically of his signature. He's left his driver's license and his credit card and his signature on hand. It's a bond. This is not going to end well. 
Well, eventually he says, look, I've got the goat. I've sent the goat back. Uh, this is the payment. Can I have my stuff back? But they can't find her. She's taken the, the, uh, the costume, the disguise off and become a widow once again. But verse 24 says three months later, when she can't hide the baby bump anymore, people are telling Judah, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by her immorality. Look at Judah's response. Judah says, then bring her out and have her burned. What a jerk. He can have sex wherever he wants, but she can't. What a double standard. A double standard that reminds us of the hypocrisy of King David, who will come later, who does almost exactly the same thing. And so verse 25 says, As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are. The signet and the cord and the staff. You can imagine how it's going to go down. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I. Since I did not move, uh, give her to my son, Sheila, as he should have done, and he did not know her again. It brings us to Judah's repentance. Her deception led to finding this sin out in his life, as we've just seen in verses 25 to 27. Now, what we know of this uh, part of the Bible and from here on, we know this was a time when Judah becomes a changed man. I think the, the Hebrew word to describe Judah in this passage here is scumbag. It's not actually, but I just made that up. But if, uh, that's what he sounds like, doesn't he? But from here on, he's changed. Chapter 44 of Genesis tells us he's different. Chapter 49 tells us he's different. We know that from this moment on, not in perfection, but in repentance, there is a real life change direction here for Judah. And sometimes that's how things go, isn't it? Sometimes we find in life there is such a big sin in our life that gets found out or we feel guilty about it and it changes the whole direction of our life. But what we hope is that life doesn't come to that point for any one of us. See, if any of us are harbouring sin, we've got to know that oftentimes that sin has a way of getting out a way of becoming public like it did for Judah. And when it does, we can respond in various ways. We can respond with guilt. I wish that hadn't have come out. Or we can respond with repentance. I did wrong and I need to turn my life around. And it's very different, guilt and repentance. They might feel the same, but their response is very different. And so if you have a sin in your life, know this, confess it. Confess it to God, confess it to a trusted Christian friend and know this, that God is a God of forgiveness. See, what Judah did here is horrible, terrible. And yet God is the God of forgiveness. Just think of these people and there's a whole list of others we could make. The Apostle Paul, a murderer of Christians forgiven by Jesus. Think of King David. An adulterer followed by a murderer and then tried to cover the whole lot up, forgiven by Jesus. Think of Rahab, the prostitute, comes to the people of God, forgiven by Jesus. Think of the centurion who guards Jesus at the cross, looking up and says, surely this man was the son of God, forgiven by Jesus, even at that moment. 
in 2023, we live in a culture of self-righteousness, don't we? A culture of finger pointers. Everyone else is wrong except me. And Judah was like this, pointing the finger at Tamar. She's wrong and forgetting that three fingers are pointing back at himself. He's just as wrong, if not worse. We must not be finger pointers, self-righteous people that think everyone else is wrong and forget to look at our own hearts. uh, Sometimes this leads people to kind of overreact, though, and say, well, it's better that uh, in not pointing the finger, we have no standards at all. But no, the, the Christian gospel asks us to have standards of holiness, to ask that of one another and to encourage that in the life of one another. But to know this, that Jesus forgives when we mess up. When there is real and true repentance, Jesus says to us, Go and sin no more, and you are forgiven at the same time. And this is what we see in Judah. We just get a small glimpse of it here. He did not know her again. He did not have sex with her again. And we see Judah growing as a person of faith as a result of his repentance, which leads us finally to God's grace in this whole episode. Verse 27 tells us that as the pregnancy goes to its full term, when the time of her labour came, there were this time twins in her womb. Now, for those of us who have been reading on with the story of Genesis so far, we'll know that may be a problem. The last set of twins that we saw, Jacob and Esau, big problems. And once again, there's jostling inside the womb and this very strange situation where in the birth process, one arm comes out, it gets a a ribbon tied to it, and then the arm goes back in and then the other baby comes out first. Poor Tamar, far out. (laughs) Well, Perez, he is the one who comes out first and then after that, Zerah. He was born first and Zerah. You see it on the screen just in case you're confused. Now Judah is... Uh, married to Tamar, and they have two twin boys, Perez and Zerah. But it's actually Perez that holds this whole chapter together. We began by asking, why is this chapter even here, and what would we miss if it wasn't here? Well, what we would miss is God's grace. See, when the promises that God made to Abraham, their forefather, in Genesis chapter 12, when those promises seem under threat, God makes good. For his promises out of the wickedness and sin of his people. And last week we saw that as Joseph took centre stage. But I didn't tell you the full story last week. You see, though Joseph took centre stage, it's not a story about Joseph or Judah. Come back with me just one chapter to chapter 37 in your Bible and verse 2. It's going to get you to do two flicks of your Bible. First one here, uh, Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. Genesis gives us a few headings along the way to tell us what we're looking for. And here's what it says. These are the generations of Jacob. Everything between chapter 37 and chapter 50 is not about Joseph or even about Judah. It's about Jacob. It's about Jacob who holds in his bloodline the very promises of God. And how God will hold those promises in that bloodline throughout the whole family. And what do those promises look like? Well, come back one page with me again. Chapter 35 of Genesis, verse 11. 
chapter 35, verse 11. God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Here's a restatement of the promises to Abraham, the promises that are in the bloodline of Jacob. And in chapter 37, when we meet Joseph, we're finding out how God fixes the first part of these promises. How can it be? How can it be that this family will be fruitful and multiply and a nation come from their body if there's going to be a great famine in the land that will wipe them out? Well, that's the story of Joseph. And in the second half of the verse, how can it be that kings will come from Jacob's body? Well, that's what chapter 38 is about. See, Judah is not an insignificant person in the rest of the Bible. We read of Judah's child, Perez, twice, or three times in the rest of the scriptures, but I want to share with you two of them. Unlike chapter 38 of Genesis, here are two passages of the Bible that we often completely ignore because they're genealogies. Look at this, Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Here's this man, Perez, the first twin that popped out first. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now what we do when we read the Bible is we don't know how to say those words, so in our heads we just go beep, like it's a swear word, and we just and so what it's, it's a beep, 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 that's all we hear when we read that passage, it makes no sense. But here's what it's saying, Perez, this child, one of the twins that's in this sinful relationship of these two people would be the great, 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 how many greats, father of the great King David. Kings will come from your body. Genesis 38 is telling us that God is going to keep his promises even if, persons, even if the people that are holding his bloodline are complete nitwit sinful idiots. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because if you know your Bible well, you'll know that it's not just King David in the Old Testament, but King Jesus in the New Testament. Look at Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, here it goes again. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and so it goes on until we get to King Jesus himself. Think of who this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 leaves out. Leaves out all the people we've seen so far. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. And who does it include? Well, it includes dodgy old Tamar and Rahab, the prostitute, and Ruth, who we've just seen, and Mary, who wasn't looked on fondly during her life either. See, this passage in Genesis chapter 38 is trying to show us God will keep his promise to bring a king from the, from the tribe of Judah, just like he promised the lion of the tribe of Judah, as Revelation 5 calls Jesus God's great king. See, when you read Genesis 38, you're supposed to say that's disgraceful. It's kind of the point. It's disgraceful. But in the midst of disgrace, there is a God of grace. And this is true in your life as well. 
in the midst of your disgrace. There is the God of grace. This is not a license for us to sin or do whatever we want or make sure that our sin is high so that God's grace would be higher. These are all the arguments that Paul puts forward in the book of Romans. No, it's not a license to sin. But you need to know this. Where there is disgrace, there is the God of grace. You might like to ask a question. There's lots to ask about possibly in that passage. I'm going to pause things for about 90 seconds or so. Slido.com, their info will come up on the screen. The hashtag is HBSP and I'm going to answer a couple of questions in just a minute. Well, if you're still asking a question, please do that and uh, pop it in slido.com and I'll uh, endeavour to answer them. There's a couple that have come through, although they've just disappeared. Here we go. Uh, Krista has asked, what does it mean in verse 21 by cult prostitute? Very, very helpful. Is there a difference between a prostitute and a cult prostitute? Uh, well, yes, but not really. I mean, they both, they're both, it's both about sex for payment. That's true. Um, but a cult prostitute, and this is what makes it even worse when you think about the situation that Judah was in, a cult prostitute is literally a, a, pro, a prostitute for uh, a particular religion. So lots of times in the ancient world, because they were so close to the ground and fertility in the ground was a big issue, their crops growing and all the rest of it, there was, uh, there was some view that if you had... Se- this is so messed up, but if you had sex on the earth then what you would do is you would tempt the gods in heaven to have sex together, which would bring about fertility, like rain or uh, fertility in the ground, all that sort of stuff. So basically, the more you could have sex on the earth with these cult prostitutes that belong to the, uh, the re- other religion in their temple, um, then the better that would be for the fertility of the ground. So that's sort of what's going on there. Um, so the, the very fact that Judah was out and about looking at looking for that, looking for that sort of stuff. Uh, And uh, it's bad enough that he would do that anyway, sleep with the prostitute, that's bad enough. But then to do that knowing that it was connected to false gods that didn't belong to his family is even worse, if you can put it that way. Um, So it's a great question and just leads us more and more to see how badly messed up Judah was. Um, Why didn't she just find another man to marry? Why her father-in-law? No one would have touched her. So in the ancient world, that's just the way, that's the way it went. It was sort of, uh, I don't know, 
what the word is, but just it's, it's you're on the scrap heap basically, and that's just the way the ancient world operated. Um, and so there was this law, and you see this law in Deuteronomy 25 that God set up for this purpose. And the law seems weird to us because it just seems like, oh, well, why didn't she just go and marry another person? But she's got no means in life. She is literally a no-hoper um, because of the situation that she's in. Uh, not because of who she is, but the situation she finds herself in. So because she's no-hoper, nobody would have gone anywhere near her. Um, and her hopes, are, her hopes, she's literally hopeless. So God sets up this situation for her uh, in his law to make sure that she's cared for more than anything else. And that's why the heir would have belonged to the first husband, to make sure that she could then get along in life because of that. So um, that's, the, that's the situation that's there. So because she was completely without hope in the world, um, she concocted this plan to, to take the father-in-law uh, and, uh, and then he would have been obliged to, to take her in marriage, which he did, but then he didn't sleep with her anymore. And that's what verse 26 tells us. Um, what do you make of verse 7? This is Mike's question. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Don't know, other than that it is what it says it is. So I don't know what he did. It must have been, uh, must have been pretty bad. Um, there, there is some weird stuff in here, like whatever, like Onan, what Onan did um, was bad uh, in knowing that the offspring would not be his. But then Judah's stuff is pretty bad too, and he, he sticks around. So I don't really understand how that works completely, um, but we've just got to take it as it is, I guess, and, and realise that uh, uh, all of us have um, a life that doesn't please God in lots of ways. And the fact that we're here longer than any time uh, that we are is... Is fair enough. I often talk about um, our life like a phone contract. You know, when you get your phone contract, and in the fine print it says from Optus, we can disconnect your service at any time. Um, our contract with God in this world is that He can disconnect the service at any time. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. So if God wants to take the service away, He can do that. He's allowed to do that, and it doesn't make Him immoral or wrong. That's that's perfectly right for Him to do that. Um, the fact that we get day after day after day after day in the midst of our own sin, or at least mine, uh, is tantamount to God's um, patience with us the majority of the time, isn't it? That we keep getting day after day after day, which is God's generous hand, really, um, that he would do that for us, which is a good thing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, even in these tricky and challenging parts. We thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you. And so we pray and thank you. And in the midst of the disgrace of this passage, we can see the grace that comes through, that you hold on to your promises through uh, your dodgy people, uh, time after time after time. And we thank you that through this family, Judah and Tamar, uh, we find uh, the great King Jesus who would bring blessing to the whole world. And we thank you that you've held on to your promises uh, through that. And we thank you that you do that in our own lives too that when our lives are messed up and we don't always get it right and we're full of sin, that you hold on to the promises given to us in the Lord Jesus uh, to, uh, to always be with us and, uh, and to always work in our lives uh, for your glory and for our benefit. Uh, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our final song together, everyone. It's a song of devotion, us to God. It's this life I live. So please stand as we sing together.